You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution. How's it going? Okay, not bad. Not bad. Uh, As Dave, as most of you guys know, my name is Kelly, and uh, tonight we are going to be talking about Christus, or solus Christus, meaning Christ alone. Yeah. Um, So, right now, we are going through, as Dave mentioned briefly, uh, the five solas series. And as, if you are not quite familiar with the five solas, uh, Dave's already been talking about the Reformation, so I'm not going to harp too much on that. Uh, Dave's talked about, um, just to recap kind of everything that's been going on so far, he's talked about uh, sola scriptura, meaning... uh, Scripture alone. That, and, and the thing about the five solas is, is they're kind of the core doctrines of Christianity. And so it's a blessing to talk about Christ alone tonight. Um, and so the church, um, especially the Protestant church, if, if all we had were these, these five solas, I think that, that would be um, the, the, kind of the foundation of what we believe as Christians. And so like I said, uh, David's talked about sola scriptura already. Uh, Sola fide, meaning uh, faith alone, that we are justified in Christ by faith alone, uh, apart from works. And when he talked about that, he, he kind of contrasted that with the law and with um, and how only the law condemns us before God, but, but we are justified by faith. And last week, Stephen had the privilege to talk about um, sola gratia and how we are saved by grace alone. And in that, he kind of contrasted... Um, uh, other religions, and including uh, Roman Catholicism, and showing how they are uh, much works-based how, and, and how Christianity is grace-based. And so tonight, um, when talking about solus Christus, I want to, um, and, and understanding that that's Christ alone, I want us to kind of contrast against um, a, a liberal or a theological liberal or um, kind of uh, modern notion of who Christ is. And, and I'm not going to kind of contrast as, heavy, as heavily as they did, but I want us to have in the back of our minds um, what, what Christ is not. And so in talking about this, I don't mean those who simply just disagree or, or, don't, or kind of passively disagree with us about who Christ is, but I mean those who are uh, actively opposed to who Christ is. And so um, we, when, when we talk about Christ alone, we are talking about um, that you know the the literal physical uh, existence of Christ, and and uh, particularly tonight, I want to focus on a lot is uh, the person and the work of Christ, and in order to do that, we have to understand. Um, in order to understand, sorry, in order to understand the work of Christ, we have to understand the person of Christ. So, uh, do I have slides up here? Okay, yeah. So what I want you guys to leave home with, the main point, is that only, solus Christus, summing that up, is that only Jesus can save because he is both God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Nothing else will do. And so if you don't leave with anything else tonight, that's what I want you to leave with. And the, the, the alone is a very important qualifier because Jesus himself and only himself is capable of saving mankind and anything more or less uh, will not do. But, but as I briefly just said, um, what is it about Christ alone that saves? It is the person and the work of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, we're going to be in the book of Mark tonight. Uh, and there's some reason for that, and I'll go into that in just a few minutes. Um, but as we break in, uh, you, you all should have Bibles. Um, NLT, I believe, is what you have in the back of the pews. I'm going to be reading it out of the English Standard Version. And uh, hopefully we'll have that up here. Um, And so we're just going to dive in uh, just briefly to the first verse in Mark chapter 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, let's pray real quick before we go on. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you um, for this privilege to come before you in your presence, to talk about you and what you've done for us how you sent your son to die in our place. God, we ask that you would allow us to understand 
the person and the work of Christ tonight in the book of Mark. That you would open our hearts and that you would allow me to speak clearly. We pray that most of all, God, that, that we can leave here glorifying you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry, my throat is very parched. <clears throat> Bless you. Andy Bug, I love you, man. So as we can see from this first verse, um, Mark hopes to instill the reader of the very deity of Christ from the start. Um, but not only this, but in the whole gospel of Mark, there's this peculiar tension between uh, the dual nature of Christ. So there's a contrast between his, his human nature and his divine nature. And so, and I think that's the best way to really understand the person and the work of Christ is to focus on uh, the dual nature. So as we, as we want to talk about what Jesus has accomplished, we'll ultimately see the importance of both the dual nature which, and, the, and the human nature, which is often called the hypostatic union, if you guys did not know that. But often uh, um, in, in the book of Mark, a lot of scholars have, have, have shown that Mark, out of all the Gospels, has the lowest Christology. And that meaning that lo- Jesus... Uh, is shown to have full humanity. Uh, a lot of people want to admit and, and point to Mark as showing proof of that. And the reason why I didn't, I didn't pick uh, the Gospel of John, who, who, which shows a high Christology, um, was because I wanted us to, to, to be clear and, and focus on, uh, Mark focuses on the suffering servant and showing the humanity of Christ and contrast that and compare um, also how Mark shows uh, Christ's divinity. And so, um, kind of a uh, bird's eye view of, what, of kind of what I'm going to be pointing at tonight. Uh, the first thing is the person of Christ. And we should, uh, yeah, so good, good. So we're going to be talking about his human nature and his divine nature. And so we kind of have an understanding of that. Then we'll be able to talk about the work of Christ. His active obedience for us and his passive obedience. And we'll get into all what that means. And then the atonement and resurrection. And that's just kind of give you got kind of an idea of where we're going. And as we go through, you can kind of understand what's unfolding. Just a few uh, preliminary things. Um, th- this liberal or false notion of Jesus that I mentioned uh, to start out with. Um, th- there's a few, uh, and actually you guys in the um, church history study group uh, will probably mention, or once I mention some of these, you probably will be familiar with some of these heresies. Um, when, when we're when we're characterizing the nature of Christ, we want to really understand uh, what it, he is not. And so, uh, the first one, I think, docetism. We want to warn against docetism, and that's basically the heresy. And thank you, Nick Merriweather, and History of Christian Thought for teaching me a lot of this stuff a couple years ago. Um, docetism is essentially the belief that Jesus uh, he, he was real, uh, but in a sense, he, but he wasn't. He didn't have a physical body. And 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 if we were to believe that then Jesus' death and his life, um, especially death on the cross and resurrection, they would be discounted. And so, um, so, so we want to warn away with Dalitism, and when we understand Christ, we'll keep understanding these things more and more. Arianism is a second heresy that I kind of just want to point out, and it's okay if you don't remember these. If this is the first time you've heard these, or if you don't remember these after, that's okay. I just want us to understand what Christ is not. Arianism shows the almost complete opposite, that, that Christ is, is not divine. That Christ is not divine. And, and so he says he's, just, he's fully human and that there is no divine element in him. Uh, Monophysitism, uh, that is just simply saying that, that Christ has one nature and he's, he's either ho- holy man or, or holy God, but he's not both. He can't be both. He only has one nature. And obviously uh, that is um, opposed to traditional Christianity as well. And, and this fourth heresy is not particularly um, concerned with Christ, although it is. It's, it's a Trinitarian heresy called modalism. And that simply just says that God is not triune, but one. And so God the Father is both the Son and both the Spirit. Um, and he just changes different modes and changes uh, as he wishes. And, and that would also be contrary to uh, traditional Christianity. And so, you know, if those leave your mind, that's completely okay. Um, but going on from now that we have that understanding of what Jesus isn't, um, we want to understand his human, or not his human, um, his human and divine nature, but in that, how those play out in his life and his death. 
So when we talk about active obedience, what do we mean? We mean essentially, and this can be a little too narrow, but essentially that means Christ's obedience for us. And, and when, he's, he, when he is obeying the law, we say that's his active ode- obedience being played out. And his passive obedience is his sufferings for us and his penalty for sin and what he undergoes in our place. And so understanding both of those, um, when we talk about the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ, we don't want to separate them too much. Um, but in, and, so, and so understanding this, I'm sorry, I don't want this to be too theological. I hope laying this foreground, it'll be very applicable for us. Um, and so, but understanding the, uh, the passive and the active obedience of Christ, um, we, we shouldn't separate them as only his active obedience refers to his sinless life and his passive obedience only refers to his atoning death. I think that would be an oversimplification. Uh, Louis Burkhoff puts it this way, uh, the two accompany each other at every point in the Savior's life. There is a constant interpretation of the two. And so he's, he's essentially saying that Christ's active and passive obedience should be regarded as complementary parts of an organic whole. And therefore his obedience, passive and active, should ultimately be seen as inseparable. For Jesus was obedient unto death, the scriptures say, in both sense of the term. Both are lifelong categories. And so we see, you may ask, why does Jesus need this dual nature? Why, why do we say Jesus uh, is, is both human and both divine? Well, I think traditional Christianity would affirm Jesus is truly man. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean he has full humanity. He is like us in every way that we are human. He is human also. So he grows in obedience just like we have to. He fulfills all righteousness. He is tempted. He is perfected in righteousness. He thirsts, he hungers, and he has pain, physical pain, and he gets tired and weary. Only because he is man, and this is important, only because he is man is he able to represent us. Only because he is man can he take our place. So, so we must affirm that he is man. And we'll see this fledge on more in depth as we go on. But on the other hand, we have Jesus being God. Jesus is truly God, right? Full divinity. That means just as God the Father and the Holy Spirit the Son is fully divine. He's fully perfect. And as John explains, God in the flesh, what better way to understand this? And, and it's only because God, Jesus, is God can, that he can take away our sin. And so he is a heavenly Messiah. Often contrast we see in, in the Gospels, the Pharisees, they wanted an earthly Messiah. They wanted him to rule and reign right here. And that's not Jesus' mission. He's a heavenly Messiah, and, and he must be God because only God can save <clears throat> and it's important for us to understand all of this, the nature of Jesus specifically, because often people can overemphasize um, one aspect over another. But a careful reading of Scripture shows that both of these dual natures of Christ are harmonious and in union with one another. And tonight, um, after mentioning we're going through the book of Mark, I want us to start off um, with uh, two brief examples to kind of get a really good understanding in this. And so... Uh, and I'm not going to flesh them out too much in detail just because there's a lot of things I want to get through. Um, but in, in Mark chapter 2, um, you guys are probably familiar with Jesus healing the paralytic. And so real briefly, we'll go into this story real quick, verses 1 through thir- uh, 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And he came, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, were questioned, that they questioned him within their, themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So we see Jesus doing a miracle. And what's, what's amazing, Mark loves to contrast the human nature and the divine nature of Christ. And so we see the first thing is Jesus exclaims to him, your sons are forgiven. And, and they, they get mad at him because he is, um, he's saying, you're doing something, you're blaspheming, you're doing something that only God can do. And he points out, but, but notice, not only does he point out, he, he, he knows their thoughts, so so Mark is portraying that he knows their thoughts. They didn't say this out loud. They said it within their hearts. So Jesus is kind of reading their heart and reading their mind and understanding uh, what they're only thinking, not saying out loud. And not only that, but Jesus claims to forgive sins like God. And the fact that he, he claims that, he proves that he is God by doing the healing. And not, on top of this, not only does he do that to show his divinity, but he claims that he is the son of man. And I'll kind of go a little bit more in depth, not, not too much in depth, but a little later on, we'll see what he means by the Son of Man. Um, but for now, uh, the Son of Man is his favorite reference to him. He does this all throughout the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, I think some 70 times, to reference himself. And it's kind of his claim to fame, or his claim that he is God by himself. Um, on top of this story, we have in chapter 4, verses uh, 35 through 41, uh, Jesus calming the storm. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and seas obey him? So we see Mark again portraying this dual nature of Jesus. He, he, so after a long day of preaching, him and his disciples decided, Hey, let's go to the other side of the sea. And um, when, he did, when he does this, he falls asleep. And so you can see he's tired, he was weary, he needs to sleep just like we do. But on top of this, they fret, and Jesus rises up, wakes, and rebukes the storm. So we see Jesus, what, what does this remind you of? Jesus is, being, is proclaiming himself Lord of creation. We see a uh, contrast with Genesis, right? The very creation story that by God's voice, by the very uh, efficacious voice, God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. And just in the same way, Jesus speaks, peace be still, and the ocean and wind cease. And so this is, this is Jesus kind of hinting at his divine nature, but not fully uh, wanting to reveal it um, for different reasons Mark has. But, but we see, you know, what, what is the point? I can go more in depth with these stories, but I, I just want to kind of get us to understanding that there is this dual nature in Jesus and, and why it is important. And also, um, uh, you know, the virgin birth is very important. Mark leaves that out of his gospel. Um, but I want us to kind of, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the virgin birth either. Um, but but kind of, Mark kind of assumes it. Um, John doesn't talk about it either. But, but I want us to understand that, um, that uh, just like the two natures of Christ, the, the, uh, the virgin birth is very important as well. And, and through the Holy Spirit, Jesus, we affirm that Jesus was born of the virgin. The scriptures say this. He was born of the virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And um, therefore, making it possible. Without this, he wouldn't be able to represent us as our federal head. And so, we just want to we just want to keep that in mind. That doctrine is very important. Although I'm, I apologize for kind of skipping over it. Um, but the main text that I want us to go to, one of the main points, is back in Mark chapter one. The text we just read were just kind of a preliminary, kind of getting understand the dual nature of Jesus. But uh, Mark Mark one four through eleven, I'll go ahead and read this real quick. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I'm, with whom I am well pleased. And so we see John the Baptist um, re, re, proclaiming a message of repentance, faith and repentance, and baptism for the remission of sins. Prepare the way of the Lord seemed to be his cry. And, this, and just so we know, this was the last prophet of the Lord. This is, he is the forerunner of the Messiah, proclaiming salvation to all who would repent and turn to the Lord. And as a symbol, he called them to be baptized. And, and John understood this Messiah, Jesus, not just to be a great prophet, but God in the flesh. For he says, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's the same Greek word, kurios, as uses for God all throughout the Old Testament as well in the Greek text. <clears throat> so I know that, that for me uh, growing up and hearing Jesus being baptized, I, I never really quite understood and didn't really. I was like, well, why does Jesus have to be baptized? I don't, I don't really understand. And I'm sure a lot of you might have that same question. So why do we see Jesus being baptized? And at first, I think rightly, this seems very odd. But it's clear if we think about it, Jesus is not being baptized because he has sin and he, and he is in need of repentance. Clearly, uh, just from what the rest of Scripture says, we would know just that. Uh, but in Matthew, mirroring the same event, he says that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And that means that if Jesus is going to call us to be baptized, he must first be baptized himself. And, and in doing this, Jesus is submitting himself unto John. Because John is a prophet, and he is speaking the word of the Lord. And in doing so, as he submits himself unto John and becomes baptized by him, he obeys God and also the law. But there's, there's a really uh, interesting thing I want to point out, too. In addition to this, and in, in addition to being obedient to God and his law and his prophets, we see the rest of tr- the triune God uh, being displayed at Jesus' baptism. In verse 10, the Holy Spirit is sending on him like a dove as, as a confirmation that Jesus is doing what he's supposed to be doing. And God the Father as well in verse 11, declaring himself to be pleased by the obedience of Jesus. And, and so not only is the triune nature of God being displayed from the outset of chapter 1 in Mark's gospel, but it is also reaffirming the deity of Jesus. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved through the baptism of the Son which is actually a foreshadowing of, if we think about it, it's a foreshadowing of our baptism into Christ, right? We will be anointed with the Holy Spirit when we repent and are saved, and the Father will look on us with delight, declaring us good. Why? Because of what Christ has done. And, and so we're getting a picture of Jesus' active obedience. That's, that's what him being obedient unto the Lord is what his active obedience is. And so in this baptism, we see his human nature being displayed in the fact that this is a physical event that he is doing. He's being immersed, or um, however the baptism would take place, into the water. And, but, and he calls us to do the same. But also, this displays his divine nature and the fact that the Spirit equips him and, and anoints him and that he is preparing himself to live out his messianic calling. And right after this, right after uh, the baptism of Christ, we see... Um, uh, the temptation of Jesus, right? Mark, unfortunately, only spends two verses on this while Matthew and Luke spend a whole chapter talking about this. Um, but I think we get all that we need to know. So in chapter 12, or not chapter, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, directly following, uh, he, Mark writes, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we see immediately after this, Jesus is equipped with the Spirit, right? And he's driven into the wilderness. The Spirit actually drives him into the wilderness. Why? Why does he go in the wilderness to be tempted? Well, it's to fulfill, to continuing to fulfill all righteousness. Mark spends two short verses on this, and, and, but, but all that we need to know is in here. And as many, as, you, as many of you probably already know from the Old Testament, um, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, 
And due to their uh, rebellious uh, and disobedient nature, um, instead of being welcomed right into the promised land, they had to spend 40 years just kind of surrounding and not knowing where to go. And in doing this, how, how fitting is it that Jesus willfully goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and, and tried and yet went out where Israel fell short? We, we see that he is taking up on behalf of God's people lack of obedience and is fulfilling all righteousness. And although the other gospels portray uh, three main temptations, it's very likely that Jesus had more than those temptations as he was in the desert for 40 days. And he was there fasting without any food. So that alone was a temptation. But, but in his faithfulness, uh, Jesus shows that no, not only is he a fitting example of faithfulness to God to follow, but his example here, and this is important, this is great. His example here is represented as the perfect expression of faithfulness and obedience to God. He fights off temptation, as we see in the Gospels, by the very word of God. He quotes scripture to Satan to fight off temptation. Not only is that a good example, but in doing that, he is, he is winning up or storing up in obedience to give to us. So like I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the temptations often was food, offered to him was food, and for, for he was fasting. Um, but the greatest temptation, I think, for Jesus was when Satan offers him to hand over Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He takes him to this pinnacle on a high, high mountain and says, look at the kingdoms of the world. These are all yours, if only you bow down to me. Now, this is, this is crazy, because if we think about this, if Jesus were to submit and say, okay, in this moment of weakness, I bow down to you and so I can receive everything. He would, he, would have, he would forego all of his sufferings for us. He wouldn't have to worry about going to the cross. But what's interesting here is that Satan is offering this to him as if he wasn't already Lord and King of creation already. But for our sake, he refused to bow down to Satan and he endured these trials and temptations, being obedient not giving in to sin like Israel did in the wilderness. And, and he is the one, or by, by doing this, he displays um, his obedience that, that he would eventually give to us for what we could not do ourselves. And through the temptations in, in the wilderness, he, in regard to his human nature, had to learn obedience. This was challenging and, and a lot of times, I think Christians um, don't like the fact that Jesus had to learn obedience. Um, but, but he did. The scriptures explain that. It doesn't mean he wasn't perfect. He just had to learn. And, and as he became obedient, that process is called learning obedience. He had to learn what it meant to be faithful to God because he had never been in a position where he was human before. But through the temptations in the wilderness, he learns obedience and becomes perfected in holiness so that he may give his perfected righteousness to those who would believe. And, and so as we, you know, and Mark is a great book for this, and we could, you know, look out how, how he is Lord of the Sabbath and all these different things, um, but to show uh, Christ's dual nature, his humanity and his divinity. Um, but I don't think there's just quite enough time to really understand how it's working out. But I would challenge all of you guys to really kind of sift through the book of Mark and look at where you can see Christ's dual nature play out. But from these two passages alone, and, and from the passages uh, I read before about um, we can gather that G- if Jesus is merely man and not equal with God, he can surely identify with us as a man, and even he could die for us, but in no way can he take away our sin. But on the other hand, if Jesus was simply God alone, we would not have a Savior who could identify with us or even be able to represent us, but only be able to look down on us in judgment. But being born from the Virgin of the Holy Spirit, Jesus miraculously escapes being born in a sin and then lives the perfect obedient life under God and his law that we obviously cannot do. And because he is God, he's then able to take our place as man. And therefore, Jesus must necessarily, we see, be both God and man, not just one or the other. But our salvation depends that we, that we trust that Christ was man and that he was divine and that both of them in full. But... <clears throat> We need to see that, that both his, his passive and his active obedience. Because Jesus not only had to die for our sins, but he, as we, see, as we just have, have, have shown by the scriptures, that he lived for our righteousness. If all that Jesus do, did was die for our sins, 
that would remove all of your guilt, which is, which is okay in a sense, but that would leave you sinless in the sight of God, not righteous. And so Jesus is working up this righteous to give to us. You would be innocent, but not righteous, because you haven't done anything to obey the law of God, which is what righteousness requires. And so by going through these passages, I think this briefly, at least now we have an understanding of what active obedience is and the reason for Jesus' dual nature, being fully human and fully God, or truly man and truly God. And so next, I really want to kind of talk about his passive obedience. And once again, this kind of means Christ's suffering for us and paying the penalty for sin that we deserve. And so in this, um, uh, I, w- I want to go to Mark chapter 10. And, and in Jesus' passive obedience, we must affirm that, that his atonement, his death, was true and physical. And I think Mark specifically points out some reasons for us to believe that. In verses, um, in verses uh, 33 and 34, foretelling of his death, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, see that again, Son of Man, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so we see, um, as Jesus foretells of his death, not, civic, not, not just his death, but specifically the acts of which uh, the, the Jews... And, and the Roman government would commit against him as he's laid up to be slaughtered. So the first thing he says, they will mock him. So God in the flesh is portrayed as, um, as in, in, portrayed and treated as if he had committed treason and blasphemy against God. And that, that, is, that is absurd because what we've just been arguing for is that Jesus was God. So, so, they, so they, uh, they mock him and say, blasphemer. You, you, you are cursing God, and yet little did they know he was very God. They will spit on him, and God in the flesh is ironically spat upon the very ones whom he created. By their mouths, they hope to malign him, malign the one who gives them that very power. And instead of using their gifts, that their mouths as, as a gift for God and to glorify him, they use it against him in order to kill him. And, and not in addition to spitting and, and using the, and the remembering that their mocking was not only verbal, as Mark displays here in this passage, but they stripped him of his clothes and, and they robed him in a purple robe, signal, signaling royalty as to mock him. And they crowned him with a crown of thorns, jeering at him king of kings, whom they thought the most arranged fool for declaring that he was such a thing. So he was publicly humiliated. Do you see the irony yet? God being mocked that he, he is God. And, and these very acts are being committed just so that Jesus is able to forgive them. It's almost absurd. And, and remember, I keep saying that they, the Jews and, and the Roman governor, government, but keep in mind, this is you and I as well, that we in our sins have crucified Christ. We have flogged him. We have maligned him and humiliated him. And every day we continue doing so. Just keep that in mind. When I say they, I really mean I. I really mean you. And Jesus says, they will flog him. They will flog the Son of Man. And as many of you know, flogging was done with leather whips, and these whips alone would begin to tear through the skin, just by themselves. But that's not all. These whips often had glass and they had metal and various sharp objects tied and attached to the ends so that they would sink in the backs of the victim and rip off the flesh. And so this was done uh, with hardly, and we, we can know from history and from what the gospels show us that, that there was hardly left any flesh um, probably on Jesus' back. And Jesus' flogging was not an exception. His, his wasn't one of the least amount of floggings because Jesus died six hours upon the cross where the other two thieves on the cross, they had to break their legs so that they would die faster. But Jesus died after only six hours. And Jesus finally says, after they flog him, they will kill him. 
as if this verbal and physical torment was not enough, he will surely die. By the hands of the unrighteous, the only righteous one will die a slow and painful death. And when we look at this and discuss and we say, why is Jesus enduring all of this? Um, he didn't have to do that. But we see, and I think what is the thesis of Mark, if you read it in full, um, just a few verses later, John and James, the brothers, ask him, hey, you know, will, can, will you give us a place of power at your right hand? Can we sit on both of your sides in power? And Jesus rebukes them and says in, in chapter 10, verse 45, you know, you just aren't getting it. The Son of Man, there's that phrase again, came to be served. Came not, sorry, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So as we've, as we've discussed, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite reference to himself, and we see it used all throughout this book, and that comes from Daniel 7, where uh, Daniel uh, points to uh, the Messiah um, and, and is claiming that the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds, bringing judgment. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not this earthly Messiah you think I am. I'm this heavenly Messiah, and I'm going to come and judge. And so I have a specific purpose that you don't understand. But... But in this, in saying that the Son of Man came to die as a ransom for many, Jesus is so choosing, as we stated before, for those whom he came to save, he's choosing to die and to give his life to redeem the lost and the broken. Those who are slaves to sin, he is on a mission to save by his life alone, by taking their penalty for sin. And with this, we are to understand that the physical pain I previously mentioned was not the worst part of the cross. As, as ugly and as terrible as that seems, probably the most uh, horrifying death anyone could ever have. The Romans were geniuses at that. That's not the worst part of the cross. And especially if we as believers um, are banking on Jesus' atonement, his active obedience up until his death and his passive obedience to free us from sin, if we're hoping in that, then, we, then he must bear the weight of human sin on the cross. Such a reality goes far beyond any physical pain we could ever imagine. And so just as us, for us, just as the sin of guilt is imputed to us through original sin as we are born, making us sinners from birth, reaffirming the fact that we too are guilty, Jesus now on the cross takes upon the guilt of our sin. All the sin of those who would believe in Christ is the sin and the guilt are imputed to him. And so, in other words, our guilt and our sin imputed, that just means attributed, given to him, as if he had done it all himself. And we know that's just the paradoxical nature of the atonement because Christ lived a righteous life. He fully obeyed God's law. But for us, for those whom he would die, he takes on our guilt and our sin on the cross. And not only does this sin, or this, the, the weight of this sin and this guilt increase the severity of the crucifixion, but it makes him have to bear the wrath of God, along with the physical and psychological torment. He has this spiritual torment that he must undergo. Because we must understand, and, and I think us as believers and those who maybe not are believers, God, has, God will not overlook sin. Either you will bear the weight of your sin because of your disobedience, because God's demand is perfection. Or, as we can see from this passage, Christ will. And by laying his life down, he's made a way for us to escape the wrath of God. If we only trust in his substitutionary sacrifice for us. And you may ask, well, what does it really mean to give, give a ransom? Well, that's a uh, synonym with redeem. Or to purchase. And so uh, I think we've all played those games before uh, where we exchange our cash for tokens and then play the tokens to, win, to play the games. Then we get tickets. And then we redeem the tickets for a prize, right? <clears throat> well, this is what Jesus did for you if you were a believer. He's taken on your sin free of charge. He's bought you out of your sin and your bondage to Satan and sin and death. But it doesn't stop there with his passive obedience. Often called double imputation, so impute means to attribute or to give doubly. Not only does Jesus take on your sin, so not only does Jesus take on your sin for himself, but he goes one step further, and he goes on to clothe you in his righteousness. All this, 
all the active and passive obedience that we've been talking about that Jesus worked for can now be credited to our accounts. So not only does he leave us sinless and clean by taking on our sin, but he makes us righteous before God by imputing his righteousness to us. And I hope you guys can see that this is the gospel and that Jesus would clothe us with, with his very righteousness, with his act of life and his, and his death. That is the gospel. And only if we believe this, that Jesus in his humanity and his, in his full divinity can we be saved. But a lot of people uh, really, really struggle with, with being justified and, and understanding exactly how we are saved. And rightly so, because God is, is holy and every person in the world should be um, unsure of his question, of his, without understanding this, they should be unsure of where they stand before God. But how can we as believers be sure that our state before a holy God, that we are righteous? How can we be sure of that? Someone may, may ask, how do I know that I can trust Christ's work on the cross? How do I know that his work was sufficient, that he has truly satisfied God's place to redeem me, if I am as wholly bad as you say? Well, there's only one, one real thing to look at, one answer. And I think that's the empty grave, the empty tomb. Because if Christ is truly physically resurrected, then his sacrifice has pleased God. His payment was satisfactory, more than satisfactory, because he has raised him from the dead. And, but, and if we look through history, and if we look through the Gospels, um, you know, often scholars will, will say, uh, you know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? It's disputed. But there's really only one thing to look at, and that's the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. It, he, he truly physically died. That's there's proof of that, and the tomb is empty, and no one had his body. So I think we can, you know, whether uh, secular hypotheses um, have been tried and, and they failed to explain, there's a miracle that has taken place on the third day that Jesus prophesies. And so it's not only a promise when Jesus says they will kill him, and after three days he will rise, but it is a prophecy. He's saying, I will rise again, and you can trust in the sacrifice that I will make for you, because I have defeated death. And so we look at the rest of Scripture. We see that all the disciples witnessed the risen Christ, even doubtful Thomas, right? And as well as more, Paul uh, proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, that over 500 people saw him. He makes no argument. He says, if you want, if you want proof, look and talk to them. They've seen him. Plus, Paul and James, the very people who wanted nothing to do with Christ, are now found trusting in his risen body. So, and, and what's interesting and, and very confusing, uh, Mark leaves his gospel a little short in anticipation of the resurrection. Um, and, and so we, when we read, uh, you know, all the gospels have a resurrection account except for Mark. Well, he has one, but it's very brief. He only spends a couple verses on it. And, and he leaves it open, saying that the women found the open tomb and ran back to tell the disciples. And that's it. No, no personal witnessing of Jesus Christ. And I think that's because Mark, Mark was excited that that's all that we needed to know. The tomb is empty. He thought we could follow the own logical implications ourselves. And so he leaves us to draw these implications that Jesus' resurrection shows that God the Father has approved of his payment on our behalf. And so when, when, with the understanding uh, Christ's death, his act of impassive obedience is duality of nature, his active and passive obedience, if I didn't already say that, um, his death and his resurrection. We no longer have to worry about our own sin if it is that we do trust in Christ. Because, but, we, but we don't have to trust in him alone because he alone can save because he alone is God and man. And, and, and we see by his resurrection that he has satisfied all the obligations that we would ever have to. He was perfectly obedient. He fought against sin and won. He did what we could never do. And now, as, as Hebrews and other books tell us, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And on behalf of believers, he intercedes on behalf of us because he has indeed risen from the dead.
And so this, what I've been talking to uh, and about tonight, is what we call solus crisis, this doctrine. This, I think, is the very heart of not only the gospel, but Christianity itself. And, and this is what Jesus has done for us. And in case, you know, this, hopefully this hasn't been too theological for you, um, but, or, and hopefully it's been practical, but, but if not, I, I want to kind of restate some things so that we can see exactly what solus Christus does for us and what, what, it, what it continues to mean for us right now as believers or what it will do for us if we repent and uh, place our faith in Christ. And so here's a few ways to think about this. One, Christ has paid the penalty of death for which you had no part in paying, and you never will have to. Because Christ has paid your debt, you're set free from that. And only his atonement with his passive and active obedience could do this. Two, Christ bears the wrath of God in your place. So no longer do you have to bear the wrath of God. No longer do you have to fear about the weight of your sin because you you don't obey your parents like you have to or that you do not um, when you serve false idols or all the Ten Commandments. When you break each and every one of them, you never, now you no longer have to be fretted by, by being under the wrath of God because Jesus has satisfied that. Number three, not only has he satisfied the wrath of God in your place, but he, Christ has reconciled you you who were hostile to the living God. And reconciling means that we've been adopted, that we have, been, we have a right relationship with, with the Father now. No longer are we hostile, but he's given us his very spirit so that we can have a relationship with him. And fourth, Christ has redeemed you from the bondage of sin. And so no longer do you have to worry about reverting back to your sin because you no longer are a slave to sin. Christ has redeemed you and set you free. And now he's made you, as Paul often says, a slave to Christ and no longer a slave to sin. So the implications further flow on, meaning that if you are a believer, you too will rise again and have eternal life. Just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, it follows that if you have faith in him, you will be glorified too in the future, resurrect- in the future resurrection. If you are a believer, you get to enjoy forever, starting in this life now, loving relationship with your creator who is for you and ever upholding you and works everything for your good. If you are a believer, you have been equipped with the Holy Spirit just as Jesus was for his ministry and have the living and abiding God pleasing to dwell with inside of you, allowing you to overcome sin and actively please him. We can now please God because we are equipped with the Holy Spirit. In addition to this, we have, if you are a believer, you have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with your weakness. But not only that, but because he, as we explained, went through the wilderness and suffered and was tried and tempted, he can relate to your very struggles that you're going through right now. Jesus is our great high priest. And if you are a believer... As we mentioned, he continually pleads on your behalf, not only reminding us, but also the Father that he's already paid for your past, current, and future sins. And so we're, fret, we're set free from condemnation. No longer do we have to be subservient to our desires to please our flesh, but we can please the Father. And so I think we need not be ashamed when reading through the Gospel of Mark, when we see Jesus being very human-like, because that is for our own good. Let us, hopefully this, this doctrine of solus Christus can help, allow us to embrace and not be afraid of Jesus' humanity, but welcome it. Because by it, he is our representative. And also, as the parts in here where he displays very high Christology, his divine nature, let us embrace his divinity also, because only by it can we be saved. So solus Christus wrapping up, Solus Christus shows that Jesus is not only sufficient in and of himself for our salvation, but he's the only one who could ever accomplish for us and then apply it to us, his righteousness. And, and so I, wanna, I want you guys to kind of leave with wondering, what are you trusting in? Hopefully, uh, as Dave has already talked about this, this series, hopefully it's not your own works. Because as we have argued here, as I've argued 
We need something divine. So we, we need God, only God can be perfectly righteous. And so are you trusting in Christ, Christ alone? Or are you trusting in Christ and something, Christ and your money, or Christ and uh, your health, or your good grades for you guys in, in school? When we, when we truly understand Christ, uh, solus crisis, that we are saved by him and him alone, our anxiety drops out, our worry drops out, every other thing, our financial burdens, they drop out. Depression, if that's what you struggle with, it drops out. Understanding your salvation doesn't mean that we won't have worldly sadness or problems or hurt in this life because Christ went through that as well. And if Christ went through it, we shall imitate him and our sufferings. But knowing this does know that we know who holds these problems. That is Christ who holds these problems. And if we trust Christ alone, even when the world, when Satan offers us seemingly better things, we know that's a lie. And we know that comfort is not quite as good as affliction if we have Christ through that affliction. So hopefully through this, we can see and taste the glory of Christ that he is both God and man. And hopefully we can leave here taking this lovely truth of our salvation in Christ. And I pray that that we will be granted eyes to see uh, the beauty of the person of Christ, as well as feel and know in our hearts the work that Christ has already accomplished. Let us pray. Dear Lord, God and Savior, Jesus, we thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf, the work that we could never do. We thank you for coming into this life, although it be full of trials and full of misery. Let us take comfort in the fact that you have burdened that for us. God, may we leave here better trusting who you are and what you've done. And may we leave here joyfully proclaiming who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.